You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Thanks for tuning into episode number 80 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we started to tell Ulysses S. Grant's life story, and at the end of the last episode, we left him in the middle of the Mexican-American War at the beginning of 1847, just as his regiment, the 4th Infantry, was transferred from Zachary Taylor's force in northern Mexico to Winfield Scott's army. As y'all know, Scott's army was going to invade central Mexico by landing at and capturing the port of Veracruz, and then marching on the enemy capital, Mexico City. The Americans' landing outside Veracruz on March 9, 1847, went smoothly enough since the Mexicans failed to contest it, and once ashore, Winfield Scott's army besieged the enemy force holed up in the fortified city. Grant was still assigned to quartermaster duties, But as he had in northern Mexico, here at Veracruz, he again showed his desire to be in the midst of the action. On one occasion, not content to stay to the rear with the mules and supplies, he went forward on a reconnaissance with a lieutenant of engineers named P.G.T. Beauregard. Moments after the two American officers made their way to a house near the Mexican lines, the enemy sent a shell crashing into the building. After the explosion, Grant and Beauregard emerged from the ruined house, having narrowly escaped death. But once the American artillery was in place, it was the shells flying in the other direction that forced the surrender of Veracruz. After a three-day bombardment, the Mexican commander formally surrendered the city to the invaders on March 29th. With the seizure of Veracruz, Scott set his sights on Mexico City, 250 miles away, And on April 13th, the Americans started their march westward toward the distant enemy capital. During the epic march, Grant again wrote to his commanding officer, expressing his unhappiness with his assignment as quartermaster. He said, quote, I must and will accompany my regiment in battle. I am amenable to court-martial should any loss occur to the public property in my charge by reason of my absence while in action, end quote. But his superior responded by saying, quote, Lieutenant Grant is informed that the duty of quartermaster and commissary is an assigned duty and not an office that can be resigned. However valuable his service might be, and certainly would be in line, his services in his present assigned duties cannot be dispensed with, end quote. But despite that admonishment, Lieutenant Grant again found his way into combat after the American army reached Mexico City. Determined to share the danger of battle with his comrades, 
Grant again made his way to the front during the difficult fight to capture the enemy capital. In fact, on September 8th, when General William Worth's division assaulted El Molino del Rey near the fortress of Chapultepec, Grant was moving forward when he came across his future brother-in-law, Fred Dent, who had been wounded. And then five days later, during the big push on September 13th, Grant again made his way to the front and took part in the fierce combat when Worth's division fought for the San Cosme Gate at the northwest corner of Mexico City. Grant scouted ahead on his own and then led a small column forward, under fire, in an attack on a vulnerable spot he detected in the enemy defenses. Grant's force made good progress toward the main gate, but then was forced to fall back when the Mexicans wheeled up two cannon to bolster their resistance at that vital spot. In his book, Ulysses S. Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, Brooks Simpson describes what happened next. Quote, Within a short time, a second assault, this time supported by artillery, commenced. Once more, Grant helped take the outlying position. Once more, the Mexicans fell back to the main gate. Again, the lieutenant set off on his own, confident that the Mexicans would yet again leave their flanks unprotected. He was right. There was a way to go around the enemy left by taking over a church located some 300 yards from the main gate. With another column of men and a disassembled mountain howitzer, Grant made his way over to the church, where he overcame the priest's initial reluctance to open the door by warning him that one way or another the American soldiers were coming in. The men hauled their howitzer up to the church belfry, reassembled it, and then began to drop shells on the surprised Mexicans. End quote. When General Worth was told of the action, he sent an aide, Lieutenant John C. Pemberton, to fetch the officer responsible for it. And just to skip ahead a bit, but in 1863, during the Civil War, Pemberton, as a Confederate general, will be in command at Vicksburg when Grant's army besieges the place. Right. But at Mexico City, after Grant reported to General Worth, Worth wanted to replicate the clever feat with the mountain howitzer, so another officer, Raphael Sims, was sent out to establish another rooftop gun position. Sims was actually a naval officer, but his ship had gone down in a storm off the Mexican coast, so he volunteered to accompany Winfield Scott's army on the march to Mexico City. And to fast forward again, but in the Civil War, Sims will serve the Confederacy as a naval officer and will command the commerce raider, the CSS Alabama. Right. But anyway, Grant was awarded two brevets as first lieutenant and captain in recognition of his initiative and bravery during the fighting to capture Mexico City. A friend of Grant's from West Point, James Longstreet, also served as an infantry officer during the campaign to seize the enemy capital, and Longstreet summed up Grant's performance by saying, quote, You could not keep him out of battle. Grant was everywhere on the field. He was always cool, swift, and unhurried, as unconcerned, apparently, as if it were a hailstorm instead of a storm of bullets. End quote. Indeed, Grant had passed the test of combat, keeping his cool while the bullets were flying, performing brave deeds, and displaying initiative while under fire. But perhaps just as important, as Brooks Simpson points out, was that through his quartermaster duties, despite his dislike for uncooperative Mexican mules, Grant had developed an appreciation for the importance of logistics to successful military operations. Well, the battle for Mexico City in September 1847 may have effectively ended the war, 
but the peace took a while to hammer out. So after the fighting was over, Ulysses settled into his duties with the American Army of Occupation, and while he came to appreciate the admirable qualities of the land and the people, he longed to return to America and, more to the point, return to his beloved Joya. He wrote to her, saying, quote, If you were here, I should never wish to leave Mexico, but as it is, I am nearly crazy to get away. End quote. And then finally, in May 1848, Ulysses and the other American soldiers on occupation duty received word that the army would leave Mexico within a month. Upon his return from Mexico and being awarded leave, Grant's first order of business was to claim his bride. Ulysses and Julia were married on August 22, 1848, at the Dent's House in St. Louis. According to at least one report of the occasion, Julia's cousin and Ulysses' friend from West Point, James Longstreet, acted as a groomsman. And I'm sure we hardly need to mention it, since we have already mentioned it, but you guys know, of course, that Longstreet and Grant will face each other on opposite sides during the Civil War. Right. And some of y'all may know about how Grant's parents, Jesse and Hannah, weren't at his wedding to Julia. Reportedly, Jesse wasn't happy that his son was marrying into a slaveholding family. But when the couple visited Ohio immediately after the wedding, Grant's family was more than pleased with Ulysses' new bride herself. The newlyweds traveled to Detroit when Brevet Captain Grant's leave ended, for that spot was where the 4th Infantry's headquarters was now located. But after arriving at the frontier town in Michigan, Ulysses was told to report for duty at Sackett's Harbor in New York State, on the shore of Lake Ontario, near present-day Fort Drum. In the spring, though, the spring of 1849, the Army changed its mind, and so Ulysses and Julia went back to Detroit again, where they lived for the next two years. One of his fellow officers remembered the small frame house that was Ulysses and Julia's first real home. He recalled, quote, It always looked homey and cozy to me, a comfortable place for two young people just married. Most of the officers lived in the hotel, all of the unmarried ones, in fact, but Grant and his wife had their own little home, end quote. In the autumn of 1849, Joy became pregnant, and as her due date approached, the post-surgeon suggested she travel to her family's home in St. Louis and deliver the baby there. And so it was there that Frederick Dent Grant was born at the end of May 1850. Shortly thereafter, Grant was given leave to visit his wife and newborn son, and he then brought them back to Detroit. But the next summer, the Army decided to send Grant to Sackett's Harbor once again, and Ulysses and Julia decided she and the baby would be more comfortable staying with her parents in Missouri. So Ulysses went east alone. The separation from his wife and his son was difficult for Ulysses. He wrote to Julia saying, quote, Sackett's Harbor is as dull a little hole as you ever saw. Take good care of little Fred and learn him to say pa. Do you think he recollects me? Has he any more teeth? End quote. But as much as he missed his little family while he was stationed in New York State, Grant was about to suffer an even more painful separation from them. In his book, Grant and Sherman, The Friendship That Won the Civil War, Charles Bracelin Flood describes what happened next. Quote, In the spring of 1852, his 4th Infantry Regiment was ordered to California. 
At that time, Ulysses and Julia had a two-year-old son, and she was due to have another baby in July. The route the 4th Infantry was to take involved boarding a ship in New York to make the voyage to Panama, and at that time, long before the Panama Canal was built, this had to be followed by an overland trip across the often disease-ridden isthmus to the Pacific, with a final long leg on another ship to San Francisco. Despite their deep desire to stay together, the Grants decided that the risks to Julia and their son, an unborn child, were too great, and that he must start serving this lengthy tour of duty alone. End quote. The 4th Infantry's journey across the Isthmus turned into a tragedy that proved the wisdom of Ulysses and Julia's decision. Because of his position as regimental quartermaster, Grant was responsible for drawing up and executing the plans to move the 700 soldiers, plus a 100 of their wives and children, across Panama to the Pacific. But he again had problems with mules, and besides that, it was the rainy season, which made the Isthmus one of the unhealthiest places on earth. And as the inevitable sickness struck the 4th Infantry soldiers and their dependents, nearly a third of the women and children died there in Panama. Of those who survived the terrible ordeal, not a few singled out Grant and praised his unflagging energy and selfless care for the sick. After burying men, women, and 20 young children along the way, Quartermaster Grant had finally got the survivors to Panama City on the Pacific coast, but there the sick were separated and sent to a vessel anchored out in the harbor, which Grant leased as a hospital ship. For two weeks, as more died around him, he remained on board the ship, arranging for food, medicine, and care. One of those who witnessed his actions during this time said that Grant was, quote, a man of iron, so far as endurance went, seldom sleeping, his work was always done, his supplies ample and on hand. He was like a ministering angel to us all, end quote. As Tracy mentioned, nearly a third of the regiment's dependents died during the 4th Infantry's journey across Panama. From the safety of the ship to San Francisco, Grant wrote to Julia, saying, quote, My dearest, you never could have crossed the isthmus. The horrors of the road in the rainy season are beyond description. End quote. After arriving in California in September of 1852, Grant spent only a few weeks near San Francisco before the regiment was shipped north to Fort Vancouver in the Oregon Territory, several miles from the growing town of Portland. It wasn't until he had been at Fort Vancouver for two months that he finally learned of the birth of his second son back in July. At the time, Julia had been staying with Grant's parents in Ohio, so the birth of Ulysses S. Grant Jr. in the Buckeye State explains the origin of the boy's nickname, Buck. Grant fell in love with Oregon. He was impressed with the land and quite taken with the opportunities available there, and he longed to bring his growing family to be with him. But the cost of living there on the frontier was exorbitant, and he realized that if he brought his family west, he wouldn't be able to support Julia and the boys on his paltry army salary. And so, increasingly homesick for his family, Grant embarked on a number of money-making ventures that he hoped would yield profits that would enable him to bring his family to live with him. But for one reason or another, each scheme fell through, and as the months passed and the separation from Julia and his sons lengthened, Ulysses grew more lonely. 
After spending a year in Oregon, Grant's hopes of bringing his family west were dealt another blow when he was reassigned to Fort Humboldt, a remote, dreary outpost on the far northern coast of California that served the area's gold mines and emergent timber industry. Grant reached Fort Humboldt in January 1854 and wasn't much impressed with the place. The lack of activity at the isolated post soon began to depress him, as did the receding hopes of bringing Julia and the boys to be with him. Some of the officers killed time by hunting the abundant wildlife around the fort, but Grant had always disliked killing animals for sport, and so he told Julia, quote, I do nothing here but sit in my room and read, and occasionally take a short ride on one of the public horses, end quote. The lack of regular communication with the outside world contributed to his depression. He wrote to his wife, letting her know that, quote, I got only one letter from you since I have been here, but it was some three months old. The only way we have of getting letters off is to give them to some captain of a vessel to mail them after he gets down to San Francisco. In the same way, mails are received. This makes it very uncertain as to the time a letter may be on the way, end quote. The gloomy weather darkened his already blue mood. In March, he wrote to Julia, saying, quote, I have not been a hundred yards from my door but once in the last two weeks. I get so tired and out of patience with the loneliness of this place. End quote. The thought that he was missing out on helping raise his sons deepened his depression. In another letter to Julia, he lamented, quote, I feel again as if I had been separated from you and Fred long enough. And as to Ulysses, I have never seen him. He must by this time be talking about as Fred did when I saw him last. How very much I want to see all of you. I have made up my mind what Ulysses looks like, and I am anxious to see if my presentiment is correct. Does he advance rapidly? Tell me a great deal about him and Fred. End quote. The misery he felt being separated from his wife and sons led him to contemplate resigning from the army. He confided this in a letter to Julia, quote, I sometimes get so anxious to see you and our little boys that I am almost tempted to resign and trust Providence and my own exertions for a living where I can have you and them with me, end quote. But he also told her of what held him back from resigning his commission, quote, It would only require the certainty of a moderate competency to make me take the step. Whenever I get to thinking upon this subject, however, poverty poverty begins to stare me in the face, and then I think, what would I do if you and our little son should want for the necessities of life? End quote. He applied for leaves and transfers, but all were denied. And then most of you are probably familiar with the oft-told tale of how Grant took to drink to drown his sorrows, and how after he was drunk while distributing money to the troops at Fort Humboldt one payday, his commanding officer threatened to court-martial him and to evade that embarrassment, Grant resigned instead. What actually happened, however, remains a bit obscure. There's no doubt that Grant did begin drinking while he was serving on the West Coast, but in the culture of the old pre-Civil War U.S. Army, where officers were known for consuming an astonishing amount of alcohol, it's hard to believe Grant drank to such a degree that his behavior was considered remarkable. What seems to be the case is that rather than regularly drinking to excess, he drank regularly but simply couldn't hold his alcohol. That is, when he did drink, even a small amount affected him dramatically. 
Other than the story associated with that particular payday incident, none of Grant's fellow officers on the West Coast ever remarked upon his drinking affecting the performance of his duties. And as for that specific incident, what actually happened is unclear and may have been affected by the fact that Grant and his commanding officer at Fort Humboldt did not get on at all well on a personal level. At any rate, there was never actually an official report filed suggesting Grant was threatened with a court-martial. Grant biographer William McFeely perhaps summed it up best when he said, quote, Grant did not leave the army because he was a drunk. He drank and left the army because he was profoundly depressed. End quote. After Grant left the army and was re- reunited with Julia, he seems to have given up whatever drinking he had indulged in while serving on the West Coast. Despite falling on hard times in civilian life, there's no evidence that he ever turned to alcohol to cope with the stress and strain of struggling to provide for his family. And just to fast forward a bit, but there's also no credible evidence that Grant ever drank to excess during the Civil War. There's plenty of evidence, though, that sadly, over the years, many historians have simply repeated the standard line that Ulysses Grant was a drunkard, without ever actually investigating the matter. But as it turns out, even the most famously known incident of Grant supposedly going on a bender during the Vicksburg campaign appears to be a fabrication. As Joan Waugh points out in her book, U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, the most thorough scholarship on Grant's drinking agrees that after his time serving on the West Coast, that as a civilian, as a Civil War soldier, as president, and in retirement, Ulysses Grant rarely imbibed and never when it counted. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts.
Grant left California sailing from San Francisco and returned to New York via Nicaragua. Arriving in New York City with hardly two nickels to rub together, he appealed to Simon Bolivar Buckner, a fellow cadet at West Point and comrade from the Mexican War, for funds to tide him over until he could get word to his father that he was back on the East Coast but short of cash. Buckner, who will serve as a Confederate general during the Civil War and will surrender Fort Donelson in Tennessee to Grant in 1862, Buckner recalled Grant's predicament in this way, quote, Grant landed in New York in 1854, poor and forlorn. One day he came into my office and asked for help. He had been staying at the old Astor House, and his money was all gone, and he had no means to reach home. He asked for a loan in order to repay his bills at the hotel and reach his father in southern Ohio. I went back to the hotel with him and introduced him to the proprietor of the hotel, whom I knew. And I said Captain Grant was a man of honor, and though in hard luck he would see that his bills were paid. I vouched for him, and Grant wrote to his people in Ohio and received money shortly thereafter, enough to take him home, end quote. Joan Waugh writes of how, quote, one can only speculate about the humiliation that Grant endured during this period. He had enjoyed an elite education, proved himself an able and brave soldier in a major war, and compiled a solid record in the peacetime army, at least until the end. Now, at age 32, he returned home in the eyes of many, a poverty-stricken failure, end quote. That is certainly how Jesse Grant viewed his son. Jesse was none too happy about his eldest son leaving the army. He refused to loan Ulysses enough money to start a new life with Julia and the boys, instead suggesting that Grant join his two brothers in a leather goods business that Jesse had established over in Galena, Illinois. But Jesse didn't want to foot the bill for Ulysses to establish his family in Galena, so he said Grant would have to move to Illinois without Julia and the boys. But Grant was unwilling to be separated from his wife and children again, so he rejected Jesse's offer. And so in Missouri, Grant tried his hand at farming on 60 acres that Julia's father gave to her. The property had no building suitable for a family to call a home, so Grant built a log house on the land. Julia, unhappy at having to move from the pleasant house they had been living in on the Dent Farm, Whitehaven, later remembered that, quote, the little house looked so unattractive that we facetiously decided to call it hard scrabble, end quote. In 1855, Ulysses' first full year as a farmer, he worked side by side with some of the Dent slaves to put in a crop of wheat and corn. Seeing Ulysses, a white man, sweating and toiling in the fields alongside the black slaves, caused the Dent's well-to-do neighbors to view Grant with scorn and to look upon poor Julia with pity for having married such a poor excuse for a man. At any rate, Grant's opposition to slavery no doubt caused him to be uncomfortable with using the labor of the Dent's slaves, but he probably realized there was simply no other way for him to get a productive farm up and running in a relatively short amount of time. To expand a bit on the topic of Grant and slavery, or Grant and slaves, besides the Dent family field slaves that Grant worked beside on the farm, it seems Julia had some house slaves from her family, and whom Ulysses, who must have felt guilty anyway with Julia having to live in such a rough place as Hardscrabble, well, Ulysses seemed loath to press her to give them up. And then in March 1859, soon after he had given up farming and moved to St. Louis, 
Grant filed documents in court freeing a certain William Jones. According to Brooks Simpson, quote, he had never mentioned Jones, at least by name, in correspondence. Later in life, he did not mention him or the fact that he had owned a single slave. Julia passed over the incident in silence in her own recollections. Exactly when or how Grant acquired ownership of a slave is something of a mystery. The manumission document stated that Grant purchased William, although in later years it was understood that William had been presented to him as a gift. End quote. Simpson goes on to point out that Grant's freeing of William Jones can be seen as Grant's personal protest against the South's peculiar institution, since a 35-year-old male slave could fetch upward of $1,000 on the auction block, and so Grant's decision to free Jones meant that he gave up the opportunity to obtain some much-needed cash. Anyway, we just wanted to say that, yes, Grant used some of the Dent slaves to work with him on his farm, yes, as a Dent, Julia owned slaves, and yes, apparently somehow, some way, Ulysses Grant owned a slave and freed him in 1859. On a happier note, during the time that Ulysses was attempting to make a go of it as a civilian, he and Julia had two more children. In 1855, Ellen, who was called Nellie, was born, and then in 1858, Jesse Root Grant completed the family. His growing family no doubt added to the pressure he felt to succeed, but Ulysses struggled to earn a living as a farmer. To try to earn a few more dollars, he sometimes hauled firewood into St. Louis to sell to the city folk, and there, in his faded army jacket, he sometimes ran into friends from the army. In fact, one day in St. Louis, he ran into another West Pointer, an ex-army officer, who was also struggling to succeed in civilian life. William Tecumseh Sherman had also left the army, and he was trying to make a go of it as a banker. There on the street in St. Louis, Sherman and Grant recognized each other and spent a few minutes exchanging stories of bad luck since leaving the army. Of that meeting with Grant, Sherman reflected that, quote, West Point and the regular army aren't good schools for farmers or bankers, end quote. By Christmas, Grant was so strapped for cash that he pawned a gold watch for $22. <clears throat> Financially, the Panic of 1857 and ensuing economic collapse helped put an end to Grant's attempt at being a farmer, while physically a severe bout of malaria that he experienced in the summer of 1858 also helped make up his mind to try his hand at something besides working the land. One of Julia's cousins, Harry Boggs, had a real estate office in St. Louis and he agreed to take on Ulysses as a partner. Julia had doubts about the new job. She knew her husband was no good at business, being too trusting and generous, so how, she wondered, could such a man collect rents and debts? And indeed, Grant worked hard, but just didn't have what it took to succeed in the real estate business. Bach's wife saw that Ulysses was a decent man, but one who was out of his element in civilian life. She remembered how he said very little unless the topic of conversation was Napoleon's battles or the Mexican War or politics. She later recalled, quote, We thought him a man of ability, but in the wrong place. His mind was not on such things as selling real estate. He did clerical work and wrote a good hand, but he wasn't of much use. He hadn't the push of a businessman. Mr. Boggs went east on business, leaving the captain in charge, 
and when he returned, he found everything upside down. End quote. When the real estate job fell through, Grant applied for a job as a county engineer, which his education at West Point certainly qualified him for, but he did not have the political connections to secure the appointment. His failure to land the job left him at a loss regarding his future. Back in California, he was reluctant to leave the Army because he feared that poverty and inability to provide for his family might lie ahead if he couldn't succeed as a civilian, and now that fear appeared to be on the verge of becoming a reality. As 1859 ended, he tried to find other work, but other than a month-long job at the Customs House, nothing turned up. Finally, Julia urged Ulysses to swallow his pride and go to Ohio to see his father. Ulysses did so and accepted his father's offer to work under his brothers, Simpson and Orville, in Galena until he learned enough to become a partner. Once his family was settled in the Illinois town, up near the Wisconsin border, Ulysses started working at the family leather goods store, but by all accounts, he showed not the slightest skill at conducting transactions with customers. Eleven months later, it was there at his father's leather goods store, working under his younger brothers, that the start of the Civil War found Grant. After the firing on Fort Sumter, many of Galena's residents gathered in the courthouse on April 16, 1861, to hear a speech by their congressman, Elihu Washburn. Just the day before, President Lincoln had issued a call for 75,000 militia to serve for 90 days to put down the rebellion. And Washburn, although a Democrat, was in his hometown of Galena to drum up support for Lincoln's call for volunteers. Ulysses and Orville were in the crowd that listened to Washburn's speech that night, and as they walked home afterward, Ulysses was quiet before finally saying he thought he ought to rejoin the army. Orville agreed, and after that night, Ulysses S. Grant never went back to work at his father's store. In the next episode, we'll cover the strategic military developments that led up to the Battle of Belmont in November 1861. And so here with the rest of this show, we'll just give a brief recounting of what happened in Grant's life after that night in April 1861 when he decided to join the war to preserve the Union. Two days after Elihu Washburn spoke in Galena, the local militia company gathered and offered Grant their captaincy, but he declined. He supported their enthusiasm to answer the president's call for volunteers, but from his experience in the war with Mexico, he knew there was a world of difference between volunteer citizen soldiers and the regular army, and he wished to rejoin the latter. He did agree to accompany the Galena Militia Company to the state capitol and see to their enrollment in the state service. And so Grant traveled to Springfield, delivering the local boys to their regiment, and then prepared to return home. But a personal request from Illinois Governor Robert Yates kept him in the capital. Somehow Yates knew of Grant's service in the old army and asked Ulysses to go to the state adjutant general's office and render what assistance he could in the task of mustering in the volunteer regiments. Before long, Grant was deeply involved in recruiting, supervising, issuing orders, and even signing contracts for supplies and transport, but he still had not joined the Illinois Volunteers. But, nor had he heard anything of his request to rejoin the regular army. You see, he had sent a letter to the War Department in Washington, saying, quote, 
Having served for 15 years in the regular army, including four years at West Point, I have the honor, very respectfully, to tender my services until the close of the war in such capacity as may be offered, end quote. And based on his experience, he suggested that perhaps a colonelcy might be in order. Quote, in view of my present age and length of service, I feel myself competent to command a regiment if the president, in his judgment, should see fit to entrust one to me, end quote. Grant later admitted that, quote, I felt some hesitation in suggesting rank as high as colonelcy of a regiment, feeling somewhat doubtful whether I would be equal to the position. But I had seen nearly every colonel who had been mustered in from the state of Illinois and some from Indiana, and felt that if they could command a regiment properly and with credit, I could also, end quote. But Grant never received a reply to his offer. Apparently, in the confusion attending the start of the conflict, the War Department lost his letter, and it wasn't found until years later. And so, after mustering in the last of the state's regiments in Springfield, Grant traveled to George McClellan's headquarters in Cincinnati. McClellan had recently been promoted to Major General and given command of the Department of the Ohio, and so Grant went to call on him, hoping to plead his case personally. But McClellan, who likely remembered the rumors of Grant's drunkenness on the West Coast, claimed to be too busy to see Grant. Ulysses later wrote, quote, I called on two successive days at his office, but failed to see him on either occasion, end quote. In his book, The Man Who Saved the Union, Ulysses Grant in War and Peace, H.W. Brands notes that, quote, Grant returned to Springfield and discovered that while McClellan and the United States might not think they needed him, Governor Yates and Illinois did. The hastily mustered state regiments included some with officers who knew nothing of military command. A colonel named Simon Good led one regiment very badly. He brandished three braces of revolvers and a large hunting knife with which he vowed to skin Jefferson Davis. But he boozed as flamboyantly as he walked and talked, and he kept no semblance of military discipline. The complaints of his men reached the ears of Governor Yates, who asked around for a replacement. Grant wasn't his first choice, being a relative newcomer to Illinois and lacking the connections that might have rendered his appointment politically valuable. Apparently, Yates, too, had heard the stories of Grant's drinking, which gave him additional pause. But the members of the regiment knew Grant from their mustering, and they respected his calm, straightforward demeanor. Yates offered to make Grant a colonel and give him the command. It wasn't what Grant wanted, but it was the best position available, and he took it with relief and comparative pleasure. In accepting this command, he informed his new subordinates, your commander will require the cooperation of all the commissioned and non-commissioned officers in instructing the command and in maintaining discipline, and hopes to receive also the hearty support of every enlisted man. End quote. On June 18th, Grant took command of what would be the 21st Illinois once it entered federal service, and soon enough, with a firm but fair hand and with long days of drill and discipline, their new colonel had the regiment squared away. Just a month later, Grant was ordered to take the 21st south to Missouri, where his men joined in an attempt to track down and bring to battle a group of secessionists who had been causing problems in the area. The enemy militia was led by a colonel named Thomas Harris. On July 18th, as he led his men toward the spot where he expected to attack Harris, Grant admitted to being nervous. 
not for his own safety, but as a commander leading his men into battle. He later recalled, quote, As we approached the brow of the hill from which it was expected we could see Harris's camp and possibly find his men ready formed to meet us, my heart kept getting higher and higher until it felt to me as though it was in my throat. I would have given anything then to have been back in Illinois, but I had not the moral courage to halt and consider what to do. I kept right on. End quote. As his men reached the crest and saw that the enemy had abandoned their camp and fled southward, Grant remembered, quote, My heart resumed its place. It occurred to me at once that Harris had been as much afraid of me as I had been of him. This was a view of the question I had never taken before, but it was one I never forgot afterwards. From that event to the close of the war, I never experienced trepidation upon confronting an enemy, though I always felt more or less anxiety. I never forgot that he had as much reason to fear my forces as I had his. The lesson was valuable. End quote. Reports of Grant's effectiveness in maintaining discipline and leading the 21st Illinois soon led to his being given command of several troublesome regiments at Mexico, Missouri. It was in August that Grant learned he had been made a Brigadier General of Volunteers, his name having been advanced by Elihu Washburn to fill one of four slots for promotion which the War Department offered to Illinois. Grant's conduct, besides attracting Washburn's attention, had also earned the praise of the district commander, General John Pope, who judged Grant to be, quote, thoroughly a gentleman and an officer of intelligence and discretion, end quote. Not long after his promotion, Grant was interviewed by General John C. Fremont, the department commander, and Grant soon enough found himself given new responsibilities and making his headquarters at Cairo, Illinois, the important spot where the Ohio River joins the Mississippi. From there, Grant was tasked with clearing southeast Missouri of rebels and of securing control of the Mississippi, which was threatened by the Confederate seizure of Columbus, Kentucky. On September 5th, Grant responded to that enemy move by embarking two regiments and a battery of artillery on transports and moving 45 miles up the Ohio and seizing Paducah, Kentucky. But here we're probably starting to run ahead of ourselves, and so we'll save the discussion of Kentucky and the situation at Columbus and Paducah for next week's show. And so at this point, as you wrap up these two episodes on Grant, we'll give the last word to Brooks Simpson, who writes that, quote, Within three months of receiving his commission as colonel of the 21st Illinois, Ulysses S. Grant had demonstrated a rare understanding of the responsibilities of command. He stressed discipline and training to turn recruits into soldiers. If he had yet to command a force in combat, he had learned much about how he would respond when that time came, and he had gained some valuable lessons while displaying insight and initiative. The results of this learning process made it now seem incredible that he had once struggled to obtain a commission. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Joan Waugh's book, U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. As the subtitle to Waugh's biography of Grant suggests, she not only explores the man's life, but also his death and reputation. And along the way, she offers some interesting insights into our understanding of Grant's legacy. 
Anyway, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. spring, though, the spring of 1849, the army changed its mind, and so Ulysses and Joya went to Detroit again. Detroit? Who says Detroit? Detroit. <laughs> it's Detroit. I, <laughs> I think in western Pennsylvania we say Detroit. In Arkansas we say Detroit. <laughs> you say y'all, too. Detroit. Detroit. Detroit.